Do you have kids in your life? Whether you're a parent, teacher, aunt, uncle, grandparent, babysitter, we all know that keeping kids calm and entertained can be difficult. That's why I want to introduce to you the newest show by Slumber Studios. It's called Snuggle, and it features calming stories for kids of all ages. Whether it's for bedtime, nap time, or just for fun, Snuggle offers a cozy world of imagination and adventure. You'll find original stories where we swim with mermaids, visit old toy stores, and try out magical wands. And you'll hear our modernized renditions of classic tales like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Just search Snuggle in your podcast player and be sure to follow the show so that it's easy to find next time the kids want a good story to snuggle up with. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 11 and 12. In the previous chapters, the Nautilus took refuge in a huge dormant volcano whilst it stocked up on fuel supplies. In the following chapters, Professor Aranax recounts his incredible underwater observations of the Sargasso Sea. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 11 The Sargasso Sea That day, the Nautilus crossed a singular part of the Atlantic Ocean. No one can be ignorant of the existence of a current of warm water known by the name of the Gulf Stream. After leaving the Gulf of Florida, we went in the direction of Spitsbergen. But before entering the Gulf of Mexico, about 45 degrees of north latitude. This current divides into two arms, the principal one going towards the coast of Ireland and Norway, whilst the second bends to the south, about the height of the Azores, then touching the African shore and describing a lengthened oval, returns to the Antilles. This second arm, 
It is rather a collar than an arm. Surrounds with its circles of warm water, that portion of the cold, quiet, immovable ocean called the Sargasso Sea. A perfect lake in the open Atlantic. It takes no less than three years for the great current to pass round it. Such was the region the Nautilus was now visiting. A perfect meadow, a close carpet of seaweed, fucus, and tropical berries. So thick and so compact that the stem of a vessel could hardly tear its way through it. And Captain Nemo, not wishing to entangle his screw in this herbaceous mass, kept some yards beneath the surface of the waves. The name Sargasso comes from the Spanish word Sargazo, which signifies kelp. This kelp, or berry plant, is the principal formation of this immense bank. And this is the reason why these plants unite in the peaceful basin of the Atlantic. The only explanation which can be given, he says, seems to me to result from the experience known to all the world. Place in a vase some fragments of cork or other floating body, and give to the water in the vase a circular movement. The scattered fragments will unite in a group in the centre of the liquid surface, that is to say, in the part least agitated. In the phenomenon we are considering, the Atlantic is the vase the Gulf Stream, the circular current, and the Sargasso Sea, the central point at which the floating bodies unite. I share Maori's opinion, and I was able to study the phenomenon in the very midst, where vessels rarely penetrate. Above us floated products of all kinds heaped up amongst these brownish plants, trunks of trees, torn from the Andes or the Rocky Mountains, and floated by the Amazon or the Mississippi. Numerous wrecks, remains of keels or ships' bottoms, side planks stove in, and so weighted with shells and barnacles that they could not again rise to the surface and time will one day justify Maori's other opinion, that these substances thus accumulated for ages will become petrified by the action of the water, and will then form inexhaustible coal mines, a precious reserve prepared by far-seeing nature for the moment when men shall have exhausted the mines of contents. In the midst of this inextricable mass of plants and seaweed, I noticed some charming pink halcyons and actinii with their long tentacles trailing after them. 
and medusae, green, red, and blue. All the day of the 22nd of February, we passed in the Sagasso Sea, where such fish as are partial to marine plants find abundant nourishment. The next, the ocean had returned to its accustomed aspect. From this time, for nineteen days, from the 23rd of February to the 12th of March, the Nautilus kept in the middle of the Atlantic, carrying us at a constant speed of a hundred leagues in twenty-four hours. Captain Nemo evidently intended accomplishing his submarine program, and I imagined that he intended, after doubling Cape Horn, to return to the Australian seas of the Pacific. Ned Land had cause for fear. In these large seas, void of islands, we could not attempt to leave the boat, nor had we any means of opposing Captain Nemo's will. Our only course was to submit. But what we could neither gain by force nor cunning, I liked to think might be obtained by persuasion. This voyage ended, would he not consent to restore our liberty, under an oath never to reveal his existence, an oath of honour which we should have religiously kept. But we must consider that delicate question with the captain. But was I free to claim this liberty? Had he not himself said that from the beginning, in the firmest manner, that the secret of his life exacted from him our lasting imprisonment on board the Nautilus? And would not my four months' silence appear to him a tacit acceptance of our situation? And would not a return to the subject result in raising suspicions which might be hurtful to our project, if at some future time a favourable opportunity offered to return to them. During these nineteen days mentioned, no incident of any kind happened to signalise our voyage. I saw little of the captain. He was at work. In the library, I often found his books left open, especially those on natural history. My work on submarine depths, conned over by him, was covered with marginal notes, often contradicting my theories and systems. But the captain contented himself with thus purging my work. It was very rare for him to discuss it with me. Sometimes I heard the melancholy tones of his organ, but only at night, in the midst of the deepest obscurity, when the Nautilus slept upon the deserted ocean. During this part of our voyage, we sailed whole days on the surface of the waves. The sea seemed abandoned 
a few sailing vessels on the road to India were making for Cape of Good Hope. One day we were followed by the boats of a whaler, who, no doubt, took us for some enormous whale of great price. But Captain Nemo did not wish the worthy fellows to lose their time and travel, so ended the chase by plunging under the water. Our navigation continued until the 13th of March. That day, the Nautilus was employed in taking soundings, which greatly interested me. We had then made about 13,000 leagues since our departure from the high seas of the Pacific. The bearings gave us 45 degrees, 37 feet south latitude, and 37 degrees, 53 feet west longitude. It was the same water in which Captain Denham of the Herald sounded 7,000 fathoms without finding the bottom. There, too, Lieutenant Parker of the American Frigate Congress could not touch the bottom with 15,140 fathoms. Captain Nemo intended seeking the bottom of the ocean by a diagonal sufficiently lengthened by means of lateral planes placed at an angle of 45 degrees with the waterline of the Nautilus. Then the crew set to work at its maximum speed, its four blades beating the waves with indescribable force. Under this powerful pressure, the hull of the Nautilus quivered like a sonorous cord and sank regularly under the water. At seven thousand fathoms, I saw some blackish tops rising from the midst of the waters. But these summits might belong to high mountains, like the Himalayas or Mont Blanc, even higher, and the depths of the abyss remained incalculable. The Nautilus descended still lower, in spite of the great pressure. I felt the steel plates tremble at the fastening of the bolts. Its bars bent, its partitions groaned. The windows of the saloon seemed to curve under the pressure of the waters. And this firm structure would doubtless have yielded if, as its captain had said, it had not been capable of resistance like a solid block. We had attained a depth of 16,000 yards, four leagues, and the sides of the Nautilus then bore a pressure of 1,600 atmospheres, that is to say, 3,200 pounds to each square two-fifths of an inch of its surface. What a situation to be in, I exclaimed. To overrun these deep regions where man has never trod. 
Look, Captain. Look at these magnificent rocks. These uninhabited grottos. These lowest receptacles of the globe. Where life is no longer possible. What known sights are here? Why should we be unable to preserve a remembrance of them? Would you like to carry away more, Zenzi Remembrance? said Captain Nemo. What do you mean by those words? I mean to say that nothing is easier than to make a photographic view of this submarine region. I had not time to express my surprise at this new proposition, when, at Captain Nemo's call, an objective was brought into the saloon. Through the widely opened panel, the liquid mass was bright with electricity, which was disturbed with such uniformity that not a shadow, not a gradation, was to be seen in our manufactured light. The Nautilus remained motionless, the force of its screw subdued by the inclination of its planes. The instrument was propped on the bottom of the oceanic site, and in a few seconds we had obtained a perfect negative. But the operation being over, Captain Nemo said, Let us go up. We must not abuse our position, nor expose the Nautilus too long to such great pressures. Go up again, I exclaimed. Hold on well. I had not time to understand why the captain cautioned me thus when I was thrown forward onto the carpet. At a signal from the captain, its screw was shipped, and its blaze raised vertically. The Nautilus shot into the air like a balloon, rising with stunning rapidity, and cutting the mass of waters with a sonorous agitation. Nothing was visible and in four minutes it had shot through the four leagues which separated it from the ocean, and, after emerging like a flying fish, fell, making the waves rebound to an enormous height. Chapter 12 Cachalots and Whales During the nights of the 13th and 14th of March, the Nautilus returned to its southerly coast. I fancied that when on a level with Cape Horn, he would turn the helm westwards in order to beat the Pacific seas, and so complete the tour of the world. He did nothing of the kind, but continued on his way to the southern regions. Where was he going to? To the pole? It was madness. 
I began to think that the captain's temerity justified Ned Land's fears. For some time past, the Canadian had not spoken to me of his projects of flight. He was less communicative, almost silent. I could see that this lengthened imprisonment was weighing upon him, and I felt that rage was burning within him. When he met the captain, his eyes lit up with suppressed anger and I feared that his natural violence would lead him into some extreme. That day, the 14th of March, Concier and he came to me in my room. I inquired the cause of their visit. A simple question to ask you, sir, replied the Canadian. Speak, Ned. How many men are there on board the Nautilus, do you think? I cannot tell you, my friend. I should say that its working does not require a large crew. Certainly, under existing conditions, ten men at the most ought to be enough. Well, why should there be any more? Why? I replied, looking fixedly at Ned Land, whose meaning was easy to guess. Because, I added, if my surmises are correct, and if I have well understood the captain's existence, the Nautilus is not only a vessel, it is also a place of refuge for those who, like its commander, have broken every tie upon the earth. Perhaps so, said Concier. But, in any case, the Nautilus can only contain a certain number of men. Could not you, sir, estimate their maximum? How, Concier? By calculation, given the size of the vessel which you know, sir, and consequently the quantity of air it contains, knowing also how much each man expends at a breath, and comparing these results with the fact that the Nautilus is obliged to go to the surface every twenty-four hours. Concier had not finished the sentence before I saw what he was striving at. I understand said I. But that calculation, though simple enough, can give but a very uncertain result. Never mind, said Ned Land urgently. Here it is then, said I. In one hour, each man consumes the oxygen contained in twenty gallons of air, and in twenty-four, that contained in 480 gallons. We must therefore find how many times 480 gallons of air the Nautilus contains. Just so, said Concier. Or, I continued, the size of the Nautilus being 1,500 tons, 
and one ton holding 200 gallons. It contains 300,000 gallons of air, which divided by 480 gives a quotient of 625, which means to say, strictly speaking, that the air contained in the Nautilus would suffice for 625 men for 24 hours. 625, repeated Ned Land. But remember that all of us, passengers, sailors, and officers included, would not form a tenth part of that number. Still too many for three men, murmured Concier. The Canadian shook his head, passed his hand across his forehead, and left the room without answering. Will you allow me to make an observation, sir? said Concier. Poor Ned is longing for everything that he cannot have. His past life is always present to him. Everything that we are forbidden, he regrets. His head is full of old recollections, and we must understand him. What has he to do here? Nothing. He is not learned like you, sir and has not the same taste for the beauties of the sea that we have. He would risk everything to be able to go once more into a tavern in his own country. Certainly the monotony on board must seem intolerable to the Canadian, accustomed as he was to a life of liberty and activity. Events were much rarer, which could arouse him to any show of spirit. But that day, an event did happen which recalled the bright days of the harpooner. About eleven in the morning, being on the surface of the ocean, the Nautilus fell in with a troop of whales, an encounter which did not astonish me, knowing that these creatures, hunted to death, had taken refuge in high latitudes. We were seated on the platform, with a quiet sea. The month of October in those latitudes gave us some lovely autumnal days. It was the Canadian, he could not be mistaken, who signalled a whale on the eastern horizon. Looking attentively, one might see its black back rise and fall with the waves five miles from the Nautilus. Ah, exclaimed Ned Land, if I was on board a whaler, now such a meeting would give me pleasure. It is one of large size. See with what strength its blowholes throw up columns of air and steam. Confounded, why am I bound to these steel plates? What, Ned, said I, you have not forgotten your old ideas of fishing. Can he ever tire of the emotions caused by such a chase? 
You have never fished in these seas, Ned. Never, sir. In the northern only. And as much as the Bering as in Davis Straits. Then the southern whale is still unknown to you. It is the Greenland whale you have hunted up to this time, and that would not risk passing through the warm waters of the equator. Whales are localized, according to their kinds, in certain seas which they never leave, and if one of these creatures went from Bay Ring to Davis Straits, it must be simply because there is a passage from one sea to the other either on the American or the Asiatic side. In that case, as I've never fished in these seas, I do not know the kind of whale frequenting them. I have told you, Ned. A greater reason for making their acquaintance, said Concier. Look, look, exclaimed the Canadian. They approach. They aggravate me. They know that I cannot get at them. Ned stamped his feet. His hand trembled as he grasped an imaginary harpoon. Are these cetaceans as large as those of the northern seas? Asked he. Very nearly, Ned. Because I have seen large whales, sir. Whales measuring a hundred feet. I have been told that those of Hullamark and Umgalik of the Aleutian Islands are sometimes a hundred and fifty feet long. That seems to me exaggeration. These creatures are only balieptrons, provided with dorsal fins, and... Like the cachalots, are generally much smaller than the Greenland whale. Ah, exclaimed the Canadian, whose eyes had never left the ocean. They're coming nearer. They're in the same water as the Nautilus. Then, returning to the conversation, he said, You spoke of the cachalot as a small creature. I have heard of gigantic ones. They are intelligent cetacea. It is said that some of them cover themselves with seaweed and fucus, and then are taken for islands. People encamp upon them, and settle there, light a fire, and build houses, said Concier. Yes, Joker, said Ned Land. And one fine day the creature plunges, carrying with it all the inhabitants to the bottom of the sea. Something like the travels of Sinbad the Sailor, I replied, laughing. Ah, suddenly exclaimed Ned Land. It is not one whale. There are ten. There are twenty. It is a whole troop and I not able to do anything, hands and feet tied. But friend Ned, said Concier, why do you not ask Captain Nemo's permission to chase them? 
Goncier had not finished his sentence when Ned Land had lowered himself through the panel to seek the captain. A few minutes afterwards, the two appeared together on the platform. Captain Nemo watched the troop of Cetacea playing on the waters about a mile from the Nautilus. They are southern whales, said he. There goes the fortune of our old fleet of whalers. Well, sir, asked the Canadian, can I not chase them, if only to remind me of my old train of harpooner? And to what purpose, replied Captain Nemo, only to destroy. We have nothing to do with sea whale oil on board. But sir, continued the Canadian, in the Red Sea you allowed us to follow the dugong. Then it was to procure fresh meat for my crew. Here it would be killing for killing's sake. I know that is a privilege reserved for man, but I do not approve of such murderous pastime. In destroying the southern whale, like the Greenland whale, an inoffensive creature. Your traders do a culpable action, Masterland. They have already depopulated the whole of Baffin's Bay and are annihilating a class of useful animal. Leave the unfortunate cetacea alone. They have plenty of natural enemies, cachalots, swordfish, and sawfish. Without you troubling them. The captain was right. The barbarous and inconsiderate greed of these fishermen will one day cause the disappearance of the last whale in the ocean. Ned Land whistled Yankee Doodle between his teeth, thrust his hands into his pockets, and turned his back upon us but Captain Nemo watched the troop of Cetacea, and, addressing me, said, I was right in saying that whales had natural enemies enough, without counting man. These will have plenty to do before long. Do you see, Monsieur Arnax, about eight miles to the leeward, those blackish moving points? Yes, Captain, I replied. Those are cachalots, terrible animals, which I have met in troops of two or three hundred. As to those, they are cruel, mischievous creatures. They would be right in exterminating them. The Canadian turned quickly at these words. Well, Captain, said he, it is still time, in the interest of the whales. It is useless to expose oneself, Professor. The Nautilus will disperse them. It is armed with a steel spur as good as Masterland's harpoon, I imagine. The Canadian did not put himself out enough to shrug his shoulders. 
attack Cetacea with blows of a spur. Who had ever heard of such a thing? Wait, Monsieur Arnax, said Captain Nemo. We will show you something you have never yet seen. We have no pity for these ferocious creatures. They are nothing but mouth and teeth. Mouth and teeth. No one could better describe the macrocephalus cachalot, which is sometimes more than seventy-five feet long. Its enormous head occupies one-third of its entire body. Better armed than the whale, whose upper jaw is furnished only with whalebone, it is supplied with twenty-five large tusks, about eight inches long, cylindrical and conical at the top, each weighing two pounds. It is in the upper part of this enormous head, in great cavities divided by cartilages, that is to be found from six to eight hundred pounds of that precious oil called spermaceti. The cachalot is a disagreeable creature, more tadpole than fish, according to Fredol's description. It is badly formed, the whole of its left side being, if we may say it, a failure, and being only able to see with its right eye. But the formidable troop was nearing us. They had seen the whales, and were preparing to attack them. One could judge beforehand that the cachalots would be victorious not only because they were better built for attack than their inoffensive adversaries, but also because they could remain longer underwater without coming to the surface. There was only just time to go to the help of the whales. The Nautilus went under the water. Concier, Ned Land and I took our places before the window in the saloon and Captain Nemo joined the pilot in his cage to work his apparatus as an engine of destruction. Soon I felt the beating of the screw quicken, and our speed increased. The battle between the cachalots and the whales had already begun when the Nautilus arrived. They did not at first show any fear at the sight of this new monster joining in the conflict, but they soon had to guard against its blows. What a battle! The Nautilus was nothing but a formidable harpoon brandished by the hand of its captain. It hurled itself against the fleshy mass passing through from one part to the other, leaving behind it two quivering halves of the animal. It could not feel the formidable blows from their tails upon its side, nor the shock which it produced itself much more. One cachalot killed, it ran at the next, tack 
set on the spot that it might not miss its prey, going forwards and backwards, answering to its helm, plunging when the cetacean dived into the deep waters, coming up with it when it returned to the surface, striking it front or sideways, cutting or tearing in all directions and at any pace, piercing it with its terrible spur. What carnage! What a noise on the surface of the waves! What sharp hissing, and what snorting peculiar to these enraged animals! In the midst of these waters, generally so peaceful, their tails made perfect billows. For one hour this wholesale massacre continued, from which the cachalots could not escape. Several times ten or twelve united tried to crush the Nautilus by their weight. From the window we could see their enormous mouths, studded with tusks and their formidable eyes. Ned Land could not contain himself. He threatened and swore at them. We could feel them clinging to our vessel, like dogs worrying a wild boar in a copse. But the Nautilus, working its screw, carried them here and there, or to the upper levels of the ocean, without caring for their enormous weight nor the powerful strain on the vessel. At length, the mass of cachalots broke up. The waves became quiet, and I felt that we were rising to the surface. The panel opened, and we hurried on to the platform. The sea was covered with mutilated bodies. A formidable explosion could not have divided and torn this fleshy mass with more violence. We were floating amid gigantic bodies, bluish on the back and white underneath, covered with enormous protuberances. Some terrified cachalots were flying towards the horizon. The waves were dyed with red for several miles, and the Nautilus floated in a sea of blood. Captain Nemo joined us. Well, Master Land, said he. Well, sir, replied the Canadian, whose enthusiasm had somewhat calmed. It is a terrible spectacle. Certainly, but I am not a butcher. I am a hunter, and I call this butchery. It is a massacre of mischievous creatures, replied the captain. And the Nautilus is not a butcher's knife. I like my harpoon better, said the Canadian. Everyone to his own, answered the captain, looking fixedly at Ned Land. 
and I feared he would commit some act of violence which would end in sad consequences. But his anger was turned by the sight of a whale which the Nautilus had just come up with. The creature had not quite escaped from the cachalot's teeth. I recognized the southern whale by its flat head, which is entirely black. Anatomically, it is distinguished from the white whale and the north cape whale by the seven cervical vertebrae, and it has two more ribs than its congeners. The unfortunate cetacean was lying on its side, riddled with holes from the bites, and quite dead. From its mutilated fin still hung a young whale, which it could not save from the massacre. Its open mouth let the water flow in and out, murmuring like the waves breaking on the shore. Captain Nemo steered close to the corpse of the creature. Two of his men mounted its side, and I saw, not without surprise, that they were drawing from its breast all the milk which they contained, that is to say, about two or three tons. The captain offered me a cup of the milk, which was still warm. I could not help showing my repugnance to the drink, but he assured me that it was excellent and not to be distinguished from cow's milk. I tasted it and was of his opinion. It was a useful reserve for us, for in the shape of salt, butter or cheese, it would form an agreeable variety to our ordinary diet. From that day, I noticed with uneasiness that Ned Land's ill will towards Captain Nemo increased, and I resolved to watch the Canadian's gestures closely. <laughs>